Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer committed leaders from around the world an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. For this series, I travel to Bangkok to meet up with some of the first Atlantic Fellows from the Equity in Brain Health and Health Equity Southeast Asia programmes. Today, I'm joined by Jelaine Arias, an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, University of California, San Francisco. Jelaine is a clinical ethicist. I asked her what motivated her to become an Atlantic Fellow. Serendipity, honestly. I was at the time working at the Cleveland Clinic as a clinical ethicist, starting to dive into a research career that focused on Alzheimer's and dementia and starting to explore what the legal and ethical issues in that area were. I met my mentor, Dr. Gil Urbanovich, at the Alzheimer's Association Conference in 2015, which led to a Grand Rounds presentation at the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF, which led to a conversation with Dr. Bruce Miller that opened up this door for me to be able to both join the faculty at the Memory and Aging Center and then also become a fellow in what was at the time simply the Global Brain Health Institute. What is a clinical ethicist? The goal of a clinical ethicist is to resolve ethical dilemmas that occur at the bedside. It's a really growing field, particularly in the U.S. Every hospital in the U.S. is required to have some mechanism to resolve things like withdrawing treatment for patients and the dilemmas that arise around that or who is the appropriate decision maker for a patient. Most hospitals resolve this using a committee, but some hospitals have started to integrate a clinical ethics program, which just like any other consult service is available via pager 24-7. So I did that for a total of about five years at the Cleveland Clinic. I was trained in a fellowship there and then stayed on as staff, which is equivalent to faculty, doing the consult service, but also providing support to the kidney transplant program as well as to the Center for Brain Health. Was there any particular incident or experience that motivated you towards dementia and Alzheimer's? That goes back to college and law school. In college, I worked for a woman who was in her 80s, had macular degenerate disease. Her husband wanted to get her out of the house. They asked me to work for them one day a week where I'd go pick her up and we would go to lunch and we would go shopping. We would take care of whatever errands she wanted to do. She became the surrogate grandmother to me. I worked for her all four years that I was there. And towards my senior year, she started talking about going to the doctor and maybe it's dementia. I don't know. Maybe it's Alzheimer's disease. Maybe it's mild cognitive impairment. I knew what Alzheimer's disease was vaguely, but I didn't really understand what these words meant. After I graduated, I went to law school. During my tenure as a law student, I remember very vividly the last conversation I had with her because when I called, she didn't know who I was. It was as though she knew I was familiar, but she couldn't place me. She'd kind of lost what I loved about her, her wit. And it turns out that she had Alzheimer's disease. 
Also, I took a neuroscience and law class in law school. I just thought the issues around the brain were fascinating. So by the time I got to the Cleveland Clinic, I said, I want to do neuroscience and law, and I want to do something in Alzheimer's, and everything else took off from there. You're very much focused on the risk of confidentiality for those who take part in clinical studies Mm -hmm. for biomarkers for Alzheimer's and possibly dementia. For people who might not be familiar with the health system in the United States, How does that work in terms of protecting or not protecting patient or volunteer confidentiality? It's two different issues, really. We think about Alzheimer's disease most frequently as this idea that it's plaques and tangles. What researchers can now do is through imaging and through spinal fluid, say there's the protein that either affects or causes plaques or there's the protein that causes tangles. And we call those biomarkers. They're distinct from genetic information, and that's in the U.S. very important legally. Because genetic information is something you have your whole life. It does not change. But biomarkers are something that indicate the presence of disease pathology up to 20 years before symptoms. In the U.S., we do have privacy protections that keep your medical information confidential. We have one federal that crosses all states. It's referred to as HIPAA. That's what we think about as the baseline level protections. States also vary as to whether or not they add additional protections for research purposes. A lot of my research assumes that we have these protections in place, but anybody who's a privacy expert will tell you that, yes, it's protective. Yes, it's supposed to keep health information out of insurers' hands in some situations or employers' hands in some situations, but it's not perfect. There are a number of ways that your health information may be disclosed. How easily can those loopholes be closed? The problem with the privacy laws is not the laws themselves, but about understanding what they're disclosing. As part of any research study or even clinical care, one of the risks that's always brought up is the risk of loss of confidentiality. Biomarkers could show up, that information could be shared with third parties, and that could affect your potential for being insured or even for employment. Yeah, that's what's really interesting here is most of the studies that are including biomarkers for preclinicals are not disclosing biomarker status for this reason, because we don't really know the impact it could have on insurance or employment or even your personal well-being. The exception to this is studies like the A4 trial, which use biomarker status as an inclusion criteria. So by default, if you're enrolled, you are biomarker positive. This could affect your ability if you had a biomarker that was shared Mm -hmm. with the insurance companies to affect your insurance for long-term support. Correct. And I think it's important to distinguish here between health insurance in the U.S. and long-term care insurance in the U.S. Health insurance is what we use for acute care, going to the hospital, going to see your primary care physician, all of your basic medical care. That type of information should be safe within the health insurance model. However, in long-term care insurance that provides for long-term care services and supports, long-term care facilities, at-home nursing care, anything that's going to help you with what is referred to as the activities of daily living, something that a lot of patients who develop Alzheimer's disease or other dementias need as their disease progresses, long-term care insurance, my research has shown, is likely to be affected based on the lack of underwriting protections within long-term care insurance policy. This presumably has consequences, not just for the individual concerned, but it must have an economic impact on society. 
in an article that is forthcoming, I picked apart what are the challenges with long-term care insurance with an eye towards this idea of why is the market failing, because it is not a great market in the U.S. right now, but also what is blocking people from getting access to long-term care insurance. And the reason why private long-term care insurance should play an important role is because there are no other mechanisms really available to pay for long-term care. The only public option available is Medicaid. And in order to qualify for Medicaid, you have to do what's called spending down your assets. That means really depleting almost any of your resources for you and your family, and then Medicaid would pick up long-term care. The other problem that is not really thought through is if we have a large population that's aging right now who is going to be relying on Medicaid to pay for these services, what kind of pressure does that put on our state governments to fund that? Because that money has to come from somewhere. And so it's a very dynamic and complicated problem there has been multiple attempts to try to resolve some of the challenges in the private long-term care insurance model, and none have quite worked. And part of the reason for that is some of the examples include tax incentives to get people to buy long-term care insurance. Those have largely failed because the tax incentives have been most beneficial to individuals in the upper class. Another one is a partnership program, this idea that if you buy long-term care insurance, some of the requirements to qualify for Medicaid are actually waived. Medicaid will fill the gaps of whatever long-term care insurance does not provide. Those, again, have not been as successful as they thought, particularly within the middle class. And the reason why we're most concerned about those in the middle class is those who have lower socioeconomic statuses already qualify for Medicaid. Those in the upper class most likely have the resources. And so any proposal really needs to focus on how do we get the middle class engaged. Is this a life's mission for you? I think this is something that I'll be working on for the next 10 to 15 years, picking apart the problem and trying to put it back together, trying to come up with solutions that are realistic. I have proposed some ideas about how to fix the market. I am working on how do we get data on whether or not the middle class would actually buy long-term care insurance with the right incentives. How do we encourage people who are in the right age group but also healthy to buy long-term care insurance. Also, how do we change the regulatory structure in order to make long-term care insurance available to more people? About 24% of people are denied a policy based on medical underwriting. Life insurance has a similar struggle, but long-term care insurance is where you're seeing this medical underwriting becoming a huge problem. And where does your funding come from? I am very lucky to have funding from the Global Brain Health Institute and the Alzheimer's Association jointly, and from the Hellman Foundation. But most of my funding right now comes from the National Institute of Health, who has thought that the issues that I'm working on were important enough to give me a fairly significant grant. However, it's a constant struggle to find foundations and nonprofits that want to buy into this research. I think people are starting to recognize that it's important, but some balance needs to be made between funding research that will identify a cure or a treatment that modifies the disease course for Alzheimer's disease, as well as looking at research that better provides care or can better support patients and caregivers. And is the situation in the United States unique or could your research be of benefit to other countries? Other countries are differently situated because of universal health care that we do not have in the U.S. Japan and Germany are great role models for how they provide long-term care services and how that's paid for. But I do think that the issues around how long-term care services are provided in a global population that's aging and how they're funded are probably universal. So one of the other goals I have is through Atlantic to identify 
people who can work alongside me and think about what are the economics about this. Also, wanting people who work in the clinical fields to help me think through how does it affect patients? How does it improve their outcomes? Things that I intuitively know because I see it as somebody who works in a group that treats and researches these diseases. So it's a universal problem, Mm -hmm. dementia, Alzheimer's, long-term care for those with the disease. There are a lot of commonalities around the world and any expert advice is welcome. Absolutely. I'm always willing to accept help. (laughs) Jelaine Arias, well, good luck with that and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And that was Jelaine Arias, Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, University of California, San Francisco. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.